At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We had an overflight from a Soviet aircraft that came in very low, probably maybe 400 feet and banked as it passed over our site. Um, I could see the red star on the fuselage of the aircraft. In the second occasion, I could see the pilot's face quite clearly. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place for first-hand Cold War history accounts. Thanks to financial supporter Mark Brain for providing today's intro. And make sure you hit that follow button in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. Dan served as a lieutenant and as a captain in an air defence artillery battalion of the US Army in West Germany from 1980 until 1985. He describes details of Soviet overflights deep into West Germany, and we discuss how the Warsaw Pact attempted to track their units. Now, who knew that the US Army had experimented with geese for perimeter security? Dan reveals details of this little-known specialist unit. Dan worked on the improved Hawk anti-aircraft missile system. We talk about its capabilities, the challenges of working with 1980s electronics, its deployment and exercises. And he describes a live firing exercise where an errant missile almost wiped out a group of VIPs. Don't miss part two coming in a couple of weeks where Dan describes his experiences in the War Plans Office of the General Staff. I'm delighted to welcome Dan to our Cold War conversation. I had always felt from very early childhood on a calling to the military. And the university that I was intending to go to, which was the University of Iowa, had an Army ROTC department, and I'd been in contact with them. And in 1976, after graduating from high school, I joined the ROTC department there. I stayed there for uh, three years. I graduated in 79 and I was commissioned in December of 79 and joined the army in February of 1980. I went on active duty. I was commissioned as a signal corps officer. And my first assignment at that point was to go to Fort Gordon, Georgia and attend the signal officer's basic course. At the time I went to the basic course, I did not know what my subsequent assignment would be. And it was partway through my training at the signal officer's basic course that I learned that I was going to go to Germany and that I was going to go to an air defense artillery unit. The course that you did, what were you studying there? So there were three courses I took. I took before going to my unit, I took, um, Signal officer's basic course, which was an introduction to the communication systems you would find typically at a division level signal unit. And that course uh, ran from February to May in duration. And then I took 
two courses that I volunteered for. One was basic airborne. And I took that at the end of May in Fort Benning, Georgia. That was three weeks in duration. And that instructed you on the basic premise of parachuting. So it was three weeks in length. It was a ground, a ground week, a tower week, and then a jump week where you put all your training into effect and jumped out of aircraft. Uh, there were five qualifying jumps. And at the end of the course, you got your airborne wings and you were airborne qualified. And following that, I went to a course, which I'm pretty sure no longer exists. It was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And it was called the Communications Electronic Staff Officer course. It was about eight weeks in duration. And it focused on tactical FM radio and field phones, wire switchboard. Um, in retrospect, those were all skills that I only minimally needed in the assignment that I was going to. So your deployment is to a Hawk missile battalion, and the uh, Hawk was a medium-range anti-aircraft missile? Yes, it was an improved Hawk. And the joke was that the acronym Hawk, which actually stood for homing all the way killer, the joke was that it was holiday and weekend killer. The system was, when the system worked, it was beautiful, but the system could be very sensitive, especially if you moved from the ready sites to the field. And it sometimes required nursing to get everything to work exactly as it was supposed to. August 1980, you report to your first Hawk missile unit. Can you describe what that day was like and what the following days were like? When I when I first reported, it was a little confusing. Um, I had been originally designated to go to a Nike Herc unit, and that unit uh, was in Wachenheim, Germany, which is not far from Mainz. It ended up deactivating, so I was diverted, and I was diverted to the 69th ADA Brigade. Uh, they didn't know I was coming, and they quickly scrambled to find a position for me, which there was a position open in uh, 652 ADA, which was also headquartered in Würzburg. So I went there. Um, the battalion had no place for me to stay. So the executive officer, a really good guy named Major Stewart, had a maid's room in his quarters. And I was put up in that until I could find a place to stay. The first few days were a scramble of getting in processed and learning the disposition of the battalion this was all very new to me you know how the battalion was comprised what its mission was and what my role in it would be um i had not fully integrated into that when the battalion uh, commander made a decision to send me on a reforger with the sister battalion um but when i came back from that exercise and i think all told that was probably about three or four lengths weeks in length with the uh transition and breakdown and set up, et cetera. So when I returned back to the battalion, I, I really kind of dove straight into what my job would be. The way the unit was configured, the battalion had four firing batteries, Alpha through Delta, and they were dispersed in different locations. Alpha battery was in also in Würzburg along with battalion headquarters, but it was dispersed um, up by an airfield not too far from Emory Barracks. 
Bravo Battery was in Kitzigan. Charlie Battery was in Giebelstadt. Delta Battery was in Wertheim. Those were all the ready positions and where the uh, headquarters or the the uh, barracks and support infrastructure would be. The battalion had a had a ready site too, which was called the Battalion Operations Center or BOC. That was located near Bibelried in Germany, not too far from Würzburg. The ready sites for the batteries and the battalion were all kind of rudimentary. The the place where the battalion operations center was, the BOC and Beeble Reed, actually it looked very run down and disheveled. The buildings were in ill repair. There were no insulation in most of the buildings. It was cold. It was miserable. The only building at the time that was really decent was the building that hosted the mess hall and the latrines. Everything else was in pretty bad shape um, and pretty cold. The, the reason behind it was the battalion operations center was never seen as a permanent uh, location because in the event of war, we would move to our field locations as, as outlined in, in the GDP or general defense plan. So the battalion operations center where I worked, I had a platoon, had a authorized strength of almost 50 soldiers, which was a little bigger than a normal platoon. I was never at operational strength. I think best I might've capped out at 37, 38, something like that. I was authorized an E8 platoon sergeant who's very senior. And I was authorized in a number of other NCOs. The reality of the situation was that E8 platoon sergeant uh, did not want to be a platoon sergeant. He wanted to be a, a, a company or a battery first sergeant. And that's what he did. He took a position as a battery first sergeant. So it left me in a position where for a very long period of time, the senior NCO that I had in my platoon was an E5, which is, you know, the basic level of sergeant. Those guys, my NCOs were good as, as technicians, and it was a very technical job, but they were not good as leaders. They were not developed for leadership. They were too junior, et cetera. What was the actual role of the platoon? Platoon had to establish and maintain communications with the four firing batteries and had to also have a connection to the battalion or the brigade operations center. The brigade operations center was also in Würzburg. Those connections were established through ultra high frequency radio UHF. I had six track 145 vehicles with UHF rigs on the back each vehicle had two UHF stacks in it. And I had additionally, I believe I had, um, I had four track 113s, which were relay vehicles. So when we deployed to the field, we'd have to set up relays in many cases in order to either reach the battalion, the brigade operations center, or the firing batteries. That was a heck of a lot of UHF equipment, uh, which we needed, especially having when we were when we were on site, having that reserve equipment from the track 113s was essential because the, the radios would overheat or otherwise um, develop problems and we'd have to rotate equipment out. And while we had a piece of equipment that went into direct support maintenance, we could take equipment from another vehicle and put it in its place. 
So as I mentioned, the, the system, the communication system carried the automatic data link, which carried all the information that allowed the batteries to see air pictures. It allowed uh, command and control functions. In addition to those track 145 vehicles, which were really the backbone of it, there was a vehicle that was the, uh, served kind of like a switchboard for the entire operation. It was the, um, I can't remember the nomenclature on it, but it was called the patch panel. So all those six or five vehicles with their communications coming in were routed through the patch panel via 26 pair cable. And from there, the pertinent pieces of communications and information were split off and sent to the TSQ-73. The TSQ-73 was the command and control um, vehicle. It was a hard-shelled vehicle. It was air-conditioned. It had two scopes in it, which projected the air picture. And what that did was it allowed the battalion to maintain command and control over the firing batteries. So you could uh, select which targets the battery might potentially engage, and you would preclude having two different batteries engage the same target. So you could you could um, realize an economy of your resources through that center. And the other thing that the Battalion Operations Center, TSK-73, did was it had communications with the Brigade Operations Center, so it was being fed air picture from the Brigade, and the Brigade also drew air picture from the MCC and the uh, assets like, like AWACT, and uh, eventually going further up the chain of command, be it in, in connection with the 4th Allied Tactical Air Force, which had an even bigger air picture. So it allowed a chain of command and control from the highest level, which was the 4th Allied Tactical Air Force for Southern Germany, down to the individual batteries. And it also allowed a breadth of command because 69th Air Defense Artillery Brigade, for example, that I was in had um, four battalions in it. So it was, it was a pretty big unit. The organization that we were structured under was the 32nd Army Air Defense Command. 32nd Army Air Defense Command had four brigades, and the brigades were mostly made up of Hawk units, though the 108th Brigade had Chaparral Vulcan. It had uh, an airfield protection and defense mission. So most of those units were Hawk, and most of them formed part of the Hawk missile belt. What additionally I had for communication assets, um, I had a, a wire section, which did cabling and wiring. It was, uh, you know, just field wire that you could hook up field phones, but you could also use the wire to hook up uh, command posts and, and enable communications within a command post. I had a radio section, which had FM radios and AM radios. Those were used as backup in for vehicular traffic. I had a radio um, teletype unit called a rat rig, which was not used very much. And I had another uh, another rig that was able to produce a very prototypical facsimile and, and transmit it. So those were secondary. And really, the, the backbone of the system was uh, ultra-high frequency and the communications that we 
were able to establish through that. You may not have uh, listened to episode 312, but I managed to speak to an East German NCO who was tasked with listening in on US air defense missile batteries. No, I did not hear that episode, but I'm not surprised. Um, I would be curious as to how he managed to do that. Our systems were uh, secure. We had both online encryption and we had manual encryption. So meaning we had encryption devices that had pins set in them that you would physically manually set, set, and you would do that on a daily basis. And that made the, the communications link secure. But then in addition to that, if we were transmitting anything on the communications link in, in terms of voice communications, those were done through um, uh, an encryption pad. So the communications, even though the system was secure, the voice communications uh, were all encrypted manually as well. So it was a, a double encryption system. I think their role may have been more around direction finding and finding out where these units were being located and whether they were moving anywhere. Yes. So we had, um, we had tactical sites that we would operate from. Those were like a ready site and those were a semi-permanent location. And then uh, when we would deploy to the field or in event of war, we would deploy to our GDP positions. That was the general defense plan. And those positions were much closer to the border and further up. And typically, when we deployed, to my knowledge, yes, we were being tracked twice. Uh, when I was there as a young officer, I was with, uh, on two different occasions, the unit that I was with had returned from the field to its ready site. And as we returned, we had an overflight from a Soviet aircraft that came in very low, probably maybe 400 feet and banked as it passed over our site. Um, I could see the red star on the fuselage of the aircraft. In the second occasion, I could see the pilot's face quite clearly as he passed over. And this was, you know, to my mind, that was pretty amazing because I think we were about from, from the border about 15 air minutes. So it was a pretty deep incursion that they had made to try to capture a video or a camera record of us. Wow. Wow. Was that a, a, a relatively common occurrence that the, the Soviets would actually cross the border? As surprisingly, it was. I've spoken to another officer that I served in the battalion who's done research on it. And he himself had uh, an episode of that happen and said that it was not uncommon. Now, I wouldn't say it was a daily or frequent occurrence, but it happened enough that it, it wasn't really um, completely out of the ordinary. I'd not heard about those sort of incursions and you know, as you say, a 15-minute flight time from the inner German border is uh, quite some distance into West Germany. It is. And of course, our battalion at the time was returning from the field. So 
none of our systems were up when they flew over. Not that that would have mattered because we wouldn't have engaged the aircraft anyway, but none of our systems were up. So we hadn't been able to track him or, or respond in any way. Did you have any um, incidents with the Soviet military liaison mission in West Germany? I did on two occasions. I encountered Soviet uh, military mission liaison vehicles. We referred to them as SNELM uh, from the acronym. And every soldier carried a little uh, small wallet-sized card that had smell them on the top and pictures, examples of the license plates and instructions, what to do when you saw one. And essentially you were supposed to immediately telephone a unit that was tracking them and they would dispatch vehicles to, to, to follow them from their last known location. But I didn't have any other than seeing them and reporting them. I didn't have any personal encounters with them. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Did you have any uh, amusing incidents while you were in this role? Um, we had um, a connecting line to the battalion headquarters, and that was a hard, a hard run uh, telephone connection, a line. And then that line came into the battalion operations center where I worked, and it went into a switchboard, and the switchboard was essentially a World War II era communications device. It connected to different locations. And our battalion operations center site commander was a captain who always butted heads with me, or maybe I butted heads with him because he outranked me. But he, I mentioned that they, in the early 80s, we had a lot of leadership problems in the Army. We had a lot of NCOs who were not properly staffed, not properly schooled. We had a lot of, um, Officers as well, that you know, the post Vietnam era, uh, there had been quite a bit of turmoil in the army, and in some regards, the army of the early 80s was still recovering from that. So, our operations site commander, the captain, was a very difficult individual to work for, and he was not very popular with the soldiers. He was the officer that, um, through the CS grenade during uh, one of our deployments. So there's a switchboard on site that was manned by two, two of the members of my platoon and they would, uh, you know, field calls and make the right connections. So often I would go in at lunchtime and relieve those two guys that were on the switchboard and I'd operate the switchboard myself. And I, I would tell the two guys, you know, go have lunch, take an hour off. I've got this. 
usually there was not a lot of traffic that would come through the switchboard. But one time I was on the switchboard and I answered it and it was our battalion executive officer, Major Stewart, who great guy, but just a firebrand of an officer. And he asked to speak to the captain and I, I had just answered the switchboard. I hadn't identified myself. When you answer the switchboard, you answer with the name of the switchboard and our switchboard was cat forward. So I just answered cat forward and major Stewart was on the other line. I recognized his voice, but he also identified himself and said, this is major Stewart. I want to talk to the side OIC. I want to talk to him right now. It's important. So I just sat at the switchboard. I did not make the connection. I just waited. And about 30 seconds later, I came back on and I told Major Stewart, I said, sir, uh, sorry, he's in a meeting. He said he can't be disturbed. And I knew Major Stewart well enough to realize what kind of response that would have in him. And he just exploded and he said, what? Does he know who's calling him? I want you to go back there, get him on the line and tell him he needs to talk to me now. And I said, yes, sir, I'll do the, I'll do that right away. So I set up the switchboard again, hadn't moved, hadn't connected him to the site captain's phone. And, you know, another 30 seconds passed and I got back on the line and said, sir, he said, he's really sorry, but he can't talk to you right now. He wants you to call him back when, when he has time. And Major Stewart, I could just imagine this. I couldn't see him, but I could just imagine Major Stewart getting redder and redder in the face and, and more perplexed. And he literally exploded and started swearing and said, you know, damn it. You tell him he's to come to the phone now. This is, this is totally unacceptable. I'm his superior officer. I need to talk to him. I expect him on the phone immediately. So finally, at that point in time, I connected the phone and rang it to Major Stewart or to the uh, site captain's office. And I said, sir, uh, this is the, this is Cat Forward. Major Stewart's on the line for you and he sounds really upset. And then I put the call through and I silently listened and he spent about the first 20 or 30 seconds dressing down the, the site captain and telling him that in the future, whenever he called, he was supposed to drop whatever he was doing and immediately take his call and just basically tore him apart and he never knew. It was a, it was a story that I have dined out on for years now. Brilliant, brilliant. Love these stories. So you're still a communications platoon leader at this point. I'm still at the Battalion Operations Center in 652ADA. Um, I requested a branch transfer, as I mentioned before. And the last six or seven months in my time in 652ADA, I was at Alpha Battery as executive officer. I had to learn the system for uh, the, the battle drills, if you will, for command and control of the battery. And um, not having gone to the Air Defense Artillery Basic Officers course, I was somewhat at a minor disadvantage because I didn't have the schooling and background in it. But I worked with the battery commander and came up to speed and, and learned the system. I was, I would never consider, you know, I was only there six or seven months. I never consider myself completely adept at it. 
Um, but I did learn the system. The battery commander that I served with, uh, a fellow named Ryan Lamoth, also a great officer. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, we had very strict control of our states of readiness and, and um, control of what we're supposed to do with our units. He told me that early in his command, he came up to the to the battery operation site. And as he was driving up, he saw that the missiles had their umbilical cords connected, meaning that was something you would never do unless you were at war, meaning that the the missiles could be fired. The umbilical cord would be the last thing that you would connect. And he was very shocked to see this. And he went into the, the battery control center and found out that his lieutenant, who was on duty, had on his own initiative ordered the battery to battle stations. So, um, pretty shocking state because that meant the battery, a missile was primed and ready to fire. And with the improved Hawk system, I don't think misfires were likely at all, but it was something that you would not want to take the risk of. And also when you would track, uh, aircraft as we routinely did, you really didn't want to track them with live missiles. That was, you know, completely a no-no. So he was kind of surprised and shocked at that. And I think he gave a dressing down to the lieutenant because there was no reason that the battery should have been at battle stations. That was, you know, utterly outside any of the control measures we had at the time. So as part of your practice, you'd, you'd be tracking... Uh, military aircraft or civilian aircraft as well? We would have air picture on all aircraft. And you could tell the civilian aircraft by the altitude that they flew at in the flight patterns that they were in. We could see, you know, everything that was in the sky. And for training purposes, you might, you might lock on an aircraft and not lock on it with the missile, but lock on it with the radar. So you for training purposes, you could see how you could track aircraft. In winter 1983, you are approved for a transfer to the air defense artillery. Yes. So I had been a, a signal corps officer for, at that point in time, three years. Uh, when I entered the army, I had really wanted to be in a combat arms branch and air defense artillery was considered combat arms. I had made a lot of good friendships in the battalion. I, I liked the unit. I liked the leadership. I liked the personnel. So I had requested a branch transfer from Signal Corps to Air Defense Artillery. It was approved, and it was approved on the condition that I would extend uh, my tour overseas and continue to serve in the battalion for another year. So... My previous experience served me very well because uh, communications is essential to air defense operations. And I can explain more about that if you like. But um, with that transfer, I was then in an air defense artillery billet and serving as a first as an executive officer of a firing battery. And then eventually I I moved to another unit altogether and became a battery commander. The term air defense artillery is ground-to-air missiles. 
again. So stuff like improved hawk. Yes. And in Europe at the time, uh, there were two allied tactical air forces, the second and the fourth. And the fourth allied tactical air force, which we fell under the operational control of, was in the southern part of Germany, where most of the U.S. forces were. The second was in northern Germany. And the air defense system was really an integrated system. So our um, air picture was fed not only by radars that we had, but it was also fed by the AWACS and other systems throughout. So it was a, it was a common, it was a common operating picture that really gave you a very integrated view of what the um, airspace looked like. And airspace was managed. There were corridors and transit routes that were charted out within the airspace. And essentially you had to be flying within those corridors or transit routes. You had to be flying at the right altitude and speed. And you had to, if you were an aircraft, you had to have your IFS, which is identification friend or foe radar turned on and emitting. And if in a, in a wartime setting, you were not flying in the corridors, uh, say it was a Soviet aircraft, not flying in the corridors, not flying at the proper speed or heading and not transponding, not, not uh, sending the IFF signal then that aircraft could be considered uh, an enemy and could be engaged. So you're talking for batteries within a uh, battalion, I think you were saying. Um, what is the capacity of one of those batteries? So how many aircraft could it engage simultaneously and how many missiles would you normally have available? Um. The capacity of the battery, I'm trying to recall, and I'm a little fuzzy on that. I think they had 18 Hawk missiles as their basic load uh, that could be reloaded if necessary. So each launcher held three missiles. And the battery also had uh, a variety of radars that were at its disposal as well. It had what was called an IQAR, which was an improved continuous wave acquisition radar. It had an IPAR, which was an improved pulse acquisition radar. It had um, a range only radar. And it had a, for part of its guidance system, it had a high power uh, radar. So, what these radars did, for example, the range only radar could specifically target a aircraft or an attacking force based if if the attacking aircraft was applying countermeasures that would obscure its location the range only radar could be engaged and it would uh, serve to counter the countermeasures and let you know the range of the attacking aircraft so the battery also had a battery control center and it had um, an IFF radar, which was identification friend or foe, that allowed the battery to query individual aircraft within the, within the range of it. The launchers could be reloaded, and at 
I'm not sure what level, but there was a level where reloads for the missiles were were um, available and kept. I mean, uh, how many did you say? 18 missiles per battery? I think 18. I think 18. And how often were you expecting resupply for those? I think resupply would, provided that the unit survived uh, initial stages of, of conflict, I think resupply would have to be pretty frequent. But it was, you know, always questionable. The, the parts of the system that were not well exercised were things like resupply and uh, bringing things forward. And if you can imagine all units deployed into their GDP positions, the potential for choke points and backlogs and logistics system are great. So I did not have personally a lot of confidence in resupply. And I thought personally, I thought at the level that I was at, um, supply in general would get to a point where it could be potentially chaotic, especially for units such as mine, which was a non-divisional unit. We were under the authority of the 32nd Army Air Defense Command, and we were under the tactical control. Uh, 652 is under the tactical control of the 3rd Infantry Division, but it was not a divisional unit. So we didn't have that degree of support in logistics that a divisional unit would have had. It's interesting because I, I spoke to a, I think it was a, a tanker, and uh, he was saying that they didn't really practice resupply because I think the assumption was that they wouldn't last um, that long was, was his belief. Yeah. We practiced reloading because we would reload our launchers. We had enough missiles within our basic stock to reload them. Um, but resupply was, was pretty dicey. Now, this is um, August 1980. So at this point, solidarity is just being legalized in Poland. So the free trade union solidarity, which was the first free trade union to be formed in the um, Eastern Bloc. Did that have any impact on you? Was there any increased readiness around what was going on in Poland? Well, given what was going on in Poland, I know that there was discussion that the that there were several states of readiness and alert that the army could be placed on and our air defense units could be placed in. And um, the most basic state uh, besides peacetime operations that would put you on a wartime footing was military vigilance. And I'm not, I don't recall all the measures related to military vigilance, but it would probably include 24-hour operations, uh, manning your sites, being prepared to deploy to the field, recall of personnel, things of that nature. And there was extensive discussion about whether or not uh, we were going to be put on military vig vigilance. Ultimately, we were not. And I think a lot of the, the thinking at that time was if the Soviets had gone in overtly into Poland and crushed the movement, we probably still not would have reacted militarily. In, in fact, I'm sure we wouldn't because it would not have, would not have, uh, involved the violation of the sovereignty of a NATO nation it would not have invoked article five 
but we certainly would have prepared our readiness state. Can you describe the uh, different readiness states of the batteries? Or based on your, your state would kind of dictate your level of readiness. So in normal peacetime operations, the battalion would have one battery that would be on 20 minute status. And that meant that that battery had to come to battle stations within 20 minutes and be ready to launch a missile. And the, the Hawk system uh, required a lot of maintenance. It was um, very sensitive. It was a good system. It was very functional, but it had a lot of moving pieces and a lot of highly technical equipment. So a battery uh, wasn't always going to necessarily be in a 20-minute state because it was a hard state to maintain. You had another battery that I think was in a 12-hour state, if I have this correctly, meaning it had to be ready to come to battle stations in 12 hours. A third battery, I, I can't recall honestly the time frame, but it was a delayed time frame for a number of days maybe to come to readiness. And then the fourth battery uh, could be in deep maintenance, meaning it, it would take multiple days to get to readiness. And that would rotate among the four batteries in the battalion. So for one week or one period of time, uh, Alpha Battery might be in 20-minute status, which is basically 24-hour operations that that battery maintained to be ready to go. Another battery might be in the 12-hour state. So at the end of the day, the soldiers, you'd go to minimum manning and the soldiers would be able to go home and so on and so forth. And it would rotate among the batteries. If a battery had exceptional problems and couldn't maintain its state, then a different battery would have to pick up for it and uh, go to an elevated state of readiness and be prepared. This was peacetime operations. In wartime operations, it was expected for all batteries to be in 20-minute status to be able to, to go to battle stations or maintain battle stations once they'd gone to battle stations. The battalion had an operation that they conducted every Tuesday. It was called Blazing Skies. And Blazing Skies was kind of a, a stand-in for battle stations. And in that exercise, we brought all the, the battalion, all the batteries up uh, to, to Blazing Skies or battle stations. And we fought a simulated air battle that lasted about an hour duration. And this was really an opportunity to test uh, the command and control function of the battalion. And it also um, was a real test of communications. Because, as I said, the UHF communications were absolutely vital to controlling the units and, and maintaining fire economy and fire discipline. And invariably, there would be one or more batteries that would lose communications during the exercise or, or could not come up. And that was always very difficult because the batteries did not have a communications officer. They had at best a communications NCO who was usually an E5. And he or she had responsibility for just that battery's communications link to the battalion operations center where I worked. Um, and that could be very problematic. The batteries, unfortunately, depending on the 
commander and, and the leadership did not always give the emphasis that they should to uh, their communications equipment, maintaining communications with the battalion operations center. So as a result, uh, those exercises often did not go well. The, those exercises received a lot of attention. Our brigade commander would come down. We would have, you know, general officers from 32nd ADCOM come down to the site and see what was being done, you know, review the exercise, monitor, et cetera. Um, I think, to be honest with you, when we went to the field, which was about uh, at least once a quarter, if not more frequently, when we went to the field, our communications were somewhat better. In some cases, the, the backbone of the system and the use, we used relays for a, a lot of communications with the units. I think the emphasis was really more put on during field exercises to make sure that communications were functioning. And during evaluations, we had an evaluation called the TAC eval or tactical evaluation, which was similar to what other units had, which was, um, other units had, uh, evaluations as well, but this was specifically, uh, air defense evaluation. And during those tactical evaluations, our communications system and the functionality was really good because everybody was honed and practiced and the emphasis was on. And also the exercise was relatively short in duration. It was typically about 72 hours. So everybody just went all out, um, and did a hard press to, to make sure everything was functional, operational. I mean, this is 1980s electronics. So was it quite fragile in terms of having it in the field and it getting bounced around? My memory of 80s electronics is it was a lot more fragile than it, than it is today. It was a lot more fragile. And perhaps I didn't realize that at the time because I didn't have a reference. But I do know that when it, it was prone to overheating, even, even though we were not in hot conditions in Germany, but it was very prone to overheating. As you mentioned, it would get bounced around when you went to the field. There was a version of Hawk which was self-propelled, which was on some sort of tread chassis, which was exceptionally prone to problems with its deployment because it just got bounced around too much. But um, we had, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, we had online crypt encryption devices that were a series of keys that had to be set. And those would always get bounced out of place when you would go to the field. So a, a movement like that, from an equipment point of view, required a lot of uh, tender love and care and fine tuning to get the equipment back online and to make it operational again. At the time, you know, we considered it to be cutting edge, but it was fragile and it was a strange mix of both, uh, latest technology and technology that had not been too far advanced for World War II. The AM radios that we used, FM radios, the switchboards and wiring, that was all stuff that was basically World War II technology that had been upgraded in Vietnam and then 
maybe upgraded a little bit more, but it was pretty basic technology. Uh, the UHF stuff was was really the cutting edge technology. And it was completely reliant on those electronics to be able to aim and, and fire, I'm, I'm assuming. To have the full functionality that you needed, yes, it was reliant on those electronics. And the UHF signal, the good and bad thing about it was it was very highly directional in nature. It was line of sight. That's why we had to have relays sometimes if it exceeded the range. Uh, the good thing about that being highly directional is it was harder to detect on the part of the enemies. The enemy would literally have to be within that line of sight in order to pick up the signal. The bad thing about it was uh, even minor deviations from the line of sight. Your, if your antenna was blown, you know, just a few degrees off, then you could lose signal or your signal quality would be degraded significantly. So uh, that was also a point of frequent adjustment and checking was to make sure that the, that the unit had a clear line of sight to the other units and that you were able to keep that uh, communications established. How remote or isolated were these sites? Some of them were extremely isolated. The one Alpha Battery uh, was not extremely isolated. The one at uh, the BOCs, both of the BOCs I worked at in 652 and 257 were, were kind of isolated. We had special allowances in the early 80s because we were considered isolated units so the movies that would rotate through the the uh, army air force exchange system theaters would also be sent out to our site we had a projector and we'd be able to show a movie at night that had been had been you know on post we also had um, certain support packages that were provided to us too when we had groups that would come out and sometimes too you know, little entertainment sorts of things, et cetera. But because we were isolated, it also, from a security point of view, posed a, a bit of a threat uh, or a concern because the sites could be prone to hostile activity even during peacetime. So we had, in the time I was there, we had several different commanders from 32nd Army Air Defense Command and one of them was a gentleman named Victor Hugo. He, at the time, was a two-star general. Originally in his career, he had been involved in the development of special forces. And I think this was in the, maybe in the mid-1950s. And he had several special forces assignments. He was pretty unique for an air defense officer or an air defense commander to have the background he did. But he was uh, a visionary thinker in a lot of ways, and he really challenged the paradigms that I think that we function under. Um, I met him in, in later life. I met him um, maybe in 2017 or 2018, and he was, obviously, he was much older, but still a very warm and really thoughtful gentleman and i was surprised when i met him uh because i 
you know, I frankly had lost track of him, but he, he shook my hand and I told him that I was, I'd been under his command and he was just a very nice, kindly man who I think was really touched to, to meet a former, one of his former soldiers. But he had, uh, he looked at the problem that we had of isolated tactical sites and security and, um, with his special forces background, he was willing to think outside the box. So he had gone on a, on a vacation to Scotland and he'd visited several distilleries there and he was impressed that they used what are called intruder geese as kind of an alarm system on the site when the distillery was not in operations to intruder geese are very territorial and they raise a, a large loud ruckus if someone tries to come into their area. So he had the idea of uh, bringing intruder geese to the batteries, especially the more isolated ones, and putting them around the perimeter of the battery so they could be an alarm system of sorts for the battery as well. And he, he implemented this idea. It was brilliant. Um, it was also costly. So what it required, a, a battery perimeter was quite large and had a fence around it. And it required construction of a fence within the fence for the geese. And then the, 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 the goose perimeter, the geese perimeter had to be cordoned into different sections and there were dimensions for it. And then you had to have the right mixture of gander and geese within each section. So I'm just, I don't know the, the correct numbers, but, um, a section might have five geese and one gander, and there would be multiple sections to go around to cover the, the length of the perimeter. Um, did you have a, like a special geese officer to uh, manage the geese? Uh, yes, of sorts. There was the, the, I'm not sure what level, but I would guess, um, at the divisional level. There was a veterinarian officer and part of that vet officer's duties were to check on and manage the geese. He was not attached. He was not a 32nd ADCOM asset. I don't think, I think he was a divisional asset from one of the units we were supporting. I left 32nd ADCOM in July of 85. And that was about time. I think that the, the geese perimeters were really coming on. And I had heard later that ultimately. The concept didn't work because there were wild animals like martens and weasels that were getting in and killing the geese. And there was really no way that they could, you know, counter that. Hostile forces that you weren't necessarily anticipating in the first place. Exactly. So I, I think that idea kind of withered and eventually was, was shelved. And I think there was a great goose dinner afterwards or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never heard that before. I mean, I've heard it back in like ancient times with geese being used. But uh, the fact that the U.S. Army in the, uh, the latter part of the 20th century was still using uh, that, that technique, uh, I find quite, quite intriguing, but uh, fascinating. I, I don't think it's a well-known chapter, and I don't think it turned out particularly well either. I'm, I'm going to be on the lookout for the unit patch for the uh, special geese squadron <laughs> or whatever they were. Exactly. That's a great story, Dan. Thanks for sharing that.
Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. Right, right. What, what sort of range did um, Improved Hawk have in terms of being able to, how far away could it hit a target? It was a medium-ranged system, and I'm not sure what, I don't remember what that translates into. I do know it used a proximity warhead, so what it exploded, it didn't have to directly contact the aircraft. And it um, would throw out high explosives in all directions. I think it had a launch speed, if I remember correctly, of Mach 2.4. So it was extremely, extremely fast moving. Uh, it was ideal for intercepting uh, fast moving aircraft. So what's next in your air defense career? Well, after my time in Alpha Battery, the, the brigade commander told me he wanted me to interview at uh, 257 ADA for battery command position there. It was, was the headquarters battery. The headquarters battery had the mission of the Battalion Operations Center, among other missions. That was the main mission of it. And I believe it was in um, October. 1983 that I drove down to Ansbach and interviewed with the battalion commander for the battery command position and he accepted me and um, that was the next phase in my air defense experience was was going to 257 and serving as the as a battery commander there um that unit when I went into it, it was similar to 652 in that it had four firing batteries that were dispersed in various locations. It was a good unit, probably not as tactically proficient as 652 had been, at least initially, but it was, was still in pretty good shape. The battery that I took command of, uh, you could tell that it had had disciplinary problems and a headquarters battery is a, is a difficult, um, animal because you have the battalion operations center, which is, um, a pretty important function. You have lieutenants who man the TSQ 73. You have a, a lieutenant such as I had been, who is communications platoon leader. That side of it is kind of straightforward. Um, it's a difficult mission, but it's something very tangible. And then with the headquarters battery, you have the other portion of it, which is 
administrative support to the battalion staff. The battalion staff has a battalion commander who's a lieutenant colonel, two majors, a group of staff officers who are mostly captains, sometimes a lieutenant, and all the soldiers who support the staff. So you have an operational mission and you have an administrative mission. A lot of headquarters units in different army configurations are not like that. They have more of an administrative function than they did in, in an air defense artillery hawk unit. You, you said that you would regularly de- or reasonably regularly deploy to field locations. Were they the same locations each time or was there a rotation of various different locations? A lot of the locations were similar and sometimes the deployments would just be not very far off site at all, but we would physically break down and move and physically reestablish and move back in. The exception to those cases were if we were tacked onto a reforger, which were really good exercises, then we would move on a really frequent basis into areas that we hadn't been before. They might be within our general GDP area, but they might also be locations that we had never deployed to before. And we would, I, I think during a reforger, the longest we stayed at any one location was maybe 24 hours. So it was almost a constant, um, almost a constant moving. And the opposing forces in reforger, if they, found your location they would do an overflight a really low altitude overflight uh, meaning i think that you were taken out of the exercise for a brief period of time and you're told you had to redeploy so there was a lot of moving in those in that type of exercise the exercise where we would go to local training areas um we did not typically move as much we might be there for two or three days and run the whole exercise from from the local training areas and uh presumably you're you're having to provide your own perimeter defense there isn't another unit with you providing that that is correct we provided our own perimeter defense Um, initially when the patriots were fielded i believe that they had a, a platoon of infantry attached to them that provided perimeter defense and pretty quickly that was was done away with as it wasn't really a good use of infantry. But we provided our own defense. We had uh, maybe a section of MPs and the MPs, probably the senior MP was Sergeant E5 and they would really focus on um, site access. So control the site access and we would rotate soldiers as extra duty to provide perimeter defense, establish, you know, defensive positions. Uh, being a Hawk unit, we were not on the forward edge of the battle area, the FIBA. We were somewhat back. But again, you know, I, I think as we've discussed, uh, we would have been a potential target for a Spetsnaz unit or or someone coming in and trying to take us out. So we did take our our perimeter security seriously. I was, I was just interested to know, because it, it, it sounded like you were regularly deploying to the same locations, which I just imagined would make you more 
vulnerable to uh, attack if the um, the Soviets know exactly where they're going to be lo- located. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And remember, during that time, there was tremendously huge U.S. presence in Germany. I think there was something like a total of almost a quarter of a million U.S. soldiers, and then perhaps another extra 100,000 U.S. airmen. There was at the height of, of our deployment, U.S. deployment in Germany, there were about a thousand U.S. installations or property sites. Now, that's a little misleading because it includes perhaps, you know, a, a single radio relay tower would also be considered a site. But it was a really big footprint. There was not a lot of maneuver space. And the maneuver space that was available was sought after by a lot of different units. Um, during a reforger, it was kind of all open in the entire Maneuver box area was was greatly enlarged, and you had options of moving just throughout the countryside. But what I'm getting at is that uh, we typically deployed to similar locations or a small number of locations because there were there wasn't a lot of space. There there weren't a lot of places where we could deploy to, and as a result, yes, it did end up being predictable, and it ended up being. Um, repeated on many occasions. Was there a particular type of location that was a requirement of Hawk being effective? High ground. The system is, as I said, the system is line of sight driven. So if you're going to have communications, you know, high ground is essential. You can't be down in a valley. You won't have anything. Um, An ideal site would have uh, would have uh, enough open space where you could site your radars and you could site your launchers. Uh, battalion operations center would not require as much open space necessarily, but it would still have to be on high ground. Um, it, it, we would use we would use any kind of terrain. We would set up in in fields. Um, you wouldn't want to be in a densely wooded area unless your antenna launchers, this is for Battalion Operations Center, unless your antenna launchers would, would be clear of the trees. Did you have any like live firing exercises, for example? Um, our battalion did live fire exercises in Crete on an annual basis. And each battery would go down and there was a, a firing range on the island of Crete. And there were, there were drones that were set up that, which were, um, I believe they were called bats or there were a variety of them that were used, but they were basically like a small rocket with flares on them that were sent up and the battery would, uh, lock on the target and engage it. There was another live fire exercise that we did as well. And that was, uh, within the Grafenbeer training area, which was a pretty large training area, um, that was called Reflex. And that was, that was before Stinger missiles came on. So the battalions were also equipped with red-eye missiles. The red-eye missile was uh, called a revenge weapon. 
because you fired at the tail uh, afterburners of a of a jet that was passing over. So presumably the aircraft had already inflicted some kind of damage, and you're 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 going to engage it as it retreated. So the red eye life fire exercise. The battalions in our brigade. There were four battalions. Each sent their red eye teams down to Graf and Veer, and we did live firing there with with the red eyes. So the red eye was a heat seeking missile, and this was a kind of a funny story. Uh, in the training area where they were firing the missiles, they had aluminum bleachers set up for visitors and VIPs. And generally, Germany can be overcast, but this day uh, was was a pretty sunny day, and the target had been sent off and gone up first. It was like a small rocket from a rocket launcher, and the gunner was going to engage it. You know, it was in the process of engaging it with the red eye, but the bleachers being sunny and being made out of aluminum had absorbed so much heat that for a moment, a brief moment, it looked like the rocket was going to turn and go towards those bleachers. And everybody was just scrambling to get out of there as, as quickly as they could. But it, it veered back onto its proper course. It picked up the, the heat signature of the target that was being sent out and uh, went to the target and engaged and destroyed it. Wow. A nervous moment there by the sound of it. <laughs> yes. A good reason not to sit in the bleachers. Did U.S. Army divisions at this time have any other air defense mechanisms other than advanced Hawk? In addition, from an air defense perspective, in addition to the 32nd Army Air Defense Command, each division within the within the operating area had its own organic Chaparral Vulcan uh, battalion. So 3rd Infantry Division um, had a battalion, which was, I believe, 3688. It was Chaparral. 1st Armored Division had a battalion that was 25988. Those battalions uh, were under the command and control and operational control of the divisions. They were not part of 32nd Army Air Defense Command, but they were supplemental, if you will, air defense assets that the commanders had at their disposal. The Vulcan was a, a, a minigun of sorts. So Chaparral, Chaparral was a light rail-launched missile um, at a smaller range. And typically, Chaparral Vulcans were used for uh, a fixed site defense, like an like a airfield or a headquarters, maybe. The other thing that the, the battalions had were um, Stinger sections. Initially, Stinger... Initially, it was red eye and then replaced with stinger. But the battalions also had, you know, man portable air defense systems to supplement the protection of the sites themselves. How long were you in that position of being battery commander? So, that battalion that I was in in 257, um, I was in that position for close to two years, I believe. And the battalion had been chosen to inactivate because it was going to eventually be replaced uh, by a Patriot unit. Uh, and at the time that the battalion inactivated, 
which was the summer of 1985. The battalion at that point in time was as tactically proficient as any unit that I had been in of air defense units. It was, it was very good. And there was a real feeling of regret and disappointment. The battalion was being deactivated. When a unit is deactivated, what happens to the troops? Are they deployed to other units? Yes. So the troops are redeployed. The hard part about a deactivation is that you have to provide nearly 100% accountability of all your equipment, um, which you want to do anyway, but it's, you're, you're turning it in. So instead of turning your hand receipt over to somebody who replaces you, you're literally turning in every line item of equipment. It has to be accounted for. And sometimes you find things that you had not expected you'd find when you, when you deactivate a unit. So in my arms room, for example, we pulled, we had a, I think there was a, a rack or a wall locker that was chained to the wall. And within that rack, we had weapons stored. And so we had to turn everything in. So we pulled it out and behind the, the rack, we found an extra barrel to an M6 machine gun. And we found some C4 explosive. Had no idea that that was there. What was for you next after the deactivation of your advanced Hawk unit? I was a captain on the 7th Corps staff. I worked in the plans division, specifically in war plans. Sorry, folks, that's all we've got time for from Dan today. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on the next episode with Dan working in the War Plans Office of the U.S. Army. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information